You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Lanyap Podcast. Thanks for joining. We got Doug and Greg Stokes. No guests this week, just the two of us, and we're just going to riff and see if we have anything interesting to say. I guess before we get started, we're both here in the office. Greg, you just got back in town from a European tour while your kids were in camp. Where'd you go? How was it? If I look well-rested, it is because I am, because I spent 10 days away from uh, three kids under the age of nine with my wife in Europe, which was an awesome trip. We started in Lisbon, spent three days in Lisbon, which is a fantastic city. Flew from Lisbon to Ibiza, which is an island off the coast of Barcelona in Spain, and then ended in Vienna, Austria. So we had a nice mix of cities and cuisines and wine and everything. I discovered that I really like a particular wine in Portugal that's made with a grape called a Rinto, which is a uh, white wine. It's delicious. I also discovered that I really like Portuguese brandy as a digestif. So you learn a lot on these trips. You get a lot of perspective and context. The euro and the dollar at parity. So lunches and dinners were really relatively inexpensive. Uh, it's a great time to visit. And it's always a great time to, to get away and spend some one-on-one time with your wife, especially with uh, kids that are at our kids' age. I'd be willing to bet that if you try that digestif back in the States, it's going to taste not as good as... Headed over there. <laughs> right. Not as good as when I'm like sitting on a like a little street. The streets in Lisbon, for those that don't know, are like it's like artwork. It's like a mosaic of these different stones. And so yeah, I'm sure right. that it's a little different vibe when you have like the breeze off the Atlantic and you're <laughs> right <laughs> drinking the wine. It's not hot as hell in New Orleans. Right. The other cool thing about Lisbon is the Dover sole is like a common fish there. And it, Dover sole is like one of the most expensive fish that you can buy in a restaurant here. So I was eating I ate Dover sole like so much there. It was amazing. That's great. I know. So markets have rebounded pretty dramatically in the last six weeks. And um, obviously, the news was absolutely horrible. I remember having a conversation with a client and Dave Stokes, our dad, mid-June. And Dave said something that was super insightful and I think completely on point, which was, what news isn't bad? And the idea there that markets price in sentiment and the sentiment at the time was just absolutely horrible. This leads into an article that was written this past week by Sam Rowe. And the title of the article is, You Can Make Any Piece of Data Look Bad If You Try. And he goes through several data points, and we're going to jump into a few of them. But I think the narrative is still quite negative right now. Obviously, markets have rebounded. At least people can take a breather by looking at their stock portfolios and seeing them not down 20 or 25% like they were in June. But you know we're still in a correction. There's a lot of talk now as to whether we're onwards and upwards to new highs or if this is a bear market rally and we'll turn over at some point. But Sam goes through data points and ultimately concludes that the world is a little bit more bullish than people think right now in terms of economic data. Number one, he points out that companies have announced layoffs. And so I don't know if you've been following the tech news as much as I have, but one company after another, specifically the mega cap tech companies, so Facebook, Google, Amazon, Netflix, et cetera, have all announced major layoffs, or at least saying that, like Mark Zuckerberg said, that we're going to make it difficult for you here. And if you're not willing to step up, then you probably shouldn't be here. 
the first component, he says, layoffs and discharges, total non-farm payrolls. And he goes back to early 2000s with this data. Big spike up in layoffs during COVID. But now if we look at 2022, we're well below trend in layoffs. So we're not anywhere near historic averages for the amounts of layoffs. And that leads into, obviously, the unemployment rates at 3.5%. So just comments, Greg, as it relates to you know, where the economy is and the general workforce. Everything is about context and what time frame you're looking at a particular issue. I saw something that, that Patrick O'Shaughnessy tweeted, and the tweet is that trends that matter. In the world, there is more wealth, less poverty, cheaper commodities per labor hour, a peaking population, rising food supply, more tree canopy coverage, and he goes on, less war, less death from natural disaster, et cetera. If you look at things through the big picture lens, like in 18, 1830, this is what O'Shaughnessy posts, about 90% of the global population was living in absolute poverty. Now it's less than about 5%. So things are definitely not as bad as they seem. Things in June, like when Dave made that really astute comment, were seemed horrible and like I've heard one really wise client tell us that things are never as good or as bad as they seem. The markets have responded in accordance that things were not as bad as they seemed in mid-June. Again, who knows if this is a bear market rally or what the traders call a dead cat bounce, but uh, certainly things are not as bad as they seem, especially when you look at them through a longer lens, which is what Roe points at. I'll say that, that just to plug this book that O'Shaughnessy got that, and we have this book in our in our lobby for people to read if they're sitting waiting for a meeting. But it's absolutely true to take things from a longer term lens. We're living in the best time in the history of the globe right now. And this book really lays it out. It's called 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know and Many Others You Will Find Interesting by Marion Tupi. So anyway, I think that that's a really astute point that things are not neither as good or as bad as they seem. The issue that from 1830 to now is that they didn't have social media in 1830. So there was a 24 hour news cycle. <laughs> right, exactly. So things are definitely better than they've ever been. But from a psychological standpoint, we're, and this is something that when we talked with Brian Portnoy, he highlighted Brian Portnoy is an acclaimed author that discusses the psychology of money and a couple of really good books. But anyway, Brian pointed to the fact that our human nature dictates that we like to compare ourselves and we used to just compare ourselves to our neighbors, and now our neighbors are everywhere on social media. And so we're just bombarded by information that we're not living up to the, you know, the standards of our peers, even though that they might be, you know, just like providing illusory information about, you know, their lifestyles or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, is that things are better now than they've ever been, and that the data just bears that out. From a short-term perspective, Things have been looking a lot better from inflation seems to have chilled out. The latest inflation numbers were flat on a month-to-month -month basis. On a year-over-year -year basis, inflation is still running at about 8.5%, but the price of energy has come down. Shipping containers, this is all on this really excellent piece that Roe posted, but shipping container rates have come down. Things just seem to be working themselves out, and hopefully that trend continues, and hopefully this isn't a bear market rally. And this is a sustainable rally. But again, in any case, the data seems to be looking a little bit brighter than it did not too long ago. Yeah. I want to go through a couple other of the narratives of the day and sort of debunk them. The first is, and I've been hearing about this a lot, and these are two things that are in conjunction. Number one, that consumers are tapping into savings to fight off inflation because cost of everything is going up. And 
on top of that, that debt levels are up and delinquencies are rising. So mortgage, credit card, auto loan, and uh, not only are they increasing, but then people are now delinquent on them. What Rose says is any serious conversation about debt should also address the capacity to finance that debt. And he shows a chart of household debt service to disposable personal income. And we're at historic lows, other than COVID, in which there was a massive stimulus distribution. But in terms of the amount of your income each month that goes out to service, credit card, mortgage, auto debt, we're still substantially lower than we were in the 2000s. In 2000, it was about anywhere between 12 and 14% of income was going out to service debts. Now we're under 10%. So yes, interest rates are rising, debt service is rising, but from a historic low during COVID because of massive stimulus. Right. And the whole point, you know, it's unpleasant now that mortgage rates, they've come off their highs. The mortgage rates got up close to 6%. Now they're right around 5%. And that's uncomfortable and unpleasant for people that are in the market to buy a home because obviously that just reduces your purchasing power. But the Fed has raised rates and their whole objective in terms of raising rates was to try to slow down the economy, albeit without causing a recession, whether or not they did cause a recession or were in a recession is still TBD. But that was the whole point of what they were trying to do was to try to raise interest rates to slow down the economy so inflation didn't get out of hand. And it seems like that has, at least so far, you know, on a relative basis, mortgage rates are still, and interest rates in general, like you pointed out, are still relatively not that high to history because they're coming off historic lows. And the whole point of them increasing was purposeful. Yeah. And I think the other thing that we forget is that, especially as it relates to mortgages, that we went through a period where you were able to get a sub 3% mortgage pretty easily for the last couple of years. And so a lot of refinancing was happening during 2020 and 2021. Rowe posts a chart that Goldman Sachs put out from their research department. And I'm just looking at the numbers here. Around 40% of all outstanding mortgages are at 3% or below. That's insane. Only 3% of mortgages are at 5% or higher, number one. Number two, well, what about if these loans adjust? Because a lot of people take out adjustable rate loans. That was sort of the issue in uh, 2008 where you had a lot of floating loans out there and interest rates were rising or equity in homes was declining. And so there was a forced refi. Around 5% of mortgages right now are adjustable. In 2006 and seven, it was about 35%. So the idea that rising interest rates are really having a major impact on consumer spending, most of these loans are fixed under 3%, is about 40% of them. Uh, that you're feeling pretty good as a homeowner right now. Absolutely. The thing that I noticed as well, too, is I bounced around a lot to a lot of places in Europe, and every plane that I was on was full, not just with Americans, but anyway, people are out there spending money, and you don't see, I'm sure that it's it's slowed down, and it's, it's just, you know, you can see it in the statistical data that the prices of commodities have come down, et cetera. But it seems like the consumer, the American consumer, European consumer has been pretty resilient throughout this process. The other thing that happened in the 08 crisis that was you know, difficult, obviously, was that unemployment rates spiked pretty significantly. That was so you had this sort of wave of foreclosures because there was a variety of different reasons. But you had 
subprime borrowers, and you also had people that were losing their job. And that hasn't really happened this go around yet, knock on wood, even though the narrative that exists out there is that these companies are laying people off. But what you just see in the data is that the unemployment rate is like 3.5% now. And if you zoom out from the big picture perspective, things look really bullish from a big picture, long-term standpoint. Again, what happens in the short term related to this specific bull market, bear market rally, or whether or not this is a recovery, is anyone's guess, but on a relative basis, things seem to be working out really well if you zoom out from a long-term perspective. Agreed. And we'll post this article to the show notes, but I think it really lays out and debunks a lot of the narratives of today. And we were hearing all of it from you know, clients that were concerned or articles that we were reading that, you know, this was, you know, impending disaster economically. And a lot of that was also related to what was going on in Europe, specifically the energy crisis in Europe, which I think is still a, a plausible narrative. We saw a post from somebody on Twitter, I can't recall his name, but what he did was he went and looked at Google Trends and he looked up the term firewood in German search and it was exponentially growing the <laughs> search for firewood in Germany. So it's not like everything is all good out there. There's some pockets of major negative news, especially in Europe and China. Obviously, also Latin America, which we've talked about extensively, Latin and South America. But big picture, especially America, the maybe the best house on a bad block. Things are looking pretty, pretty good here. But Doug, the yield curve inverted. Right. So what does that yeah. mean? Explain to me what the yield curve inverting means. And then what does it mean from a market standpoint, if you look at history? Yeah. So I think a lot of that is driven by the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve really has control on what happens on the short end of a yield curve. So the yield curve is simply the duration of bonds issued by the Treasury. So anywhere from overnight bonds to 30 years. And so typically what happens when a yield curve inverts, it's that the you know, overnight rate or the three-month rate or the two-year rate of treasuries yields higher than a longer-term rate. Specifically, the most famous one is the two-year versus 10-year yield curve. So if the two-year yield is higher than the 10-year yield on treasuries, well, that means that the yield curve is inverted. And the market basically thinks that the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates to whatever that two-year level is. So that's why it prices in that yield at two years. But over a longer period of time, there's going to be slower growth. And the long end of the curve actually reflects the market's expectation of long-term growth and not necessarily the expectation of Federal Reserve policy. And so when there's an inversion, it basically is a signal that the Federal Reserve is going to act swiftly to whether it's inflation or growth driven, but then long-term growth is in trouble. The other component to this is that it really hampers earnings specifically for financial institutions because they lend at long rates and borrow at short rates. And so they can't really make any money theoretically when the yield curve is inverted. So it curbs a lot of lending for them, which also curbs economic growth. But the long and short of it is that historically, a yield curve has led to a recession, and a recession is always accompanied with some sort of negative market experience. So, and I want you to speak to this. There was an article posted about what happens really with markets during an inversion period, because we're experiencing one right now. So, 
basically, this is like, let me see how many actual periods. This is like seven periods or something like that. From the point at which the yield curve inverts to the point of defined recession, the S&P 500 out of these seven or eight periods was positive all but one time. So this is the, the sort of like confusing thing about markets for people. Markets and the economy do not move in tandem. And we've talked about this in the past. The economic data may seem very negative, but the markets are forward-looking. They look forward typically three to 36 months is what I've read. The markets basically look forward through all of this data. So typically, once all of this data has come out, the markets are looking beyond it and the markets are looking towards recovery. And so that's just basically what this particular chart that Santiago Capital posted, that from this point of inversion to the actual statistically defined recession, the S&P 500 has been positive, I guess, 80 or 90% of the time. Yeah. And basically, the whole point here is that everybody's trying to look for any sort of timing tool to be able to say, okay, well, you know, because of this, uh, I don't want to own risk assets like stocks or, or whatever. And a lot of that narrative historically has been related to the inversion of a yield curve. That means imminent recession. And the whole point here is, and I guess the article, the, the title of this podcast could be debunking market narratives. But one of them is that yield curve equals negative performance, recession, et cetera, for markets. And this is just a great way to show, yeah, okay, maybe the yield curve inverted. Maybe we'll have a recession if we're not winning one already. And maybe markets will decline negatively as a result of that. But historically, between the time that the recession period starts and the yield curve starts, that lag has actually been not so bad for stocks. And so it's an interesting counter narrative to the sort of bearish point that yield curve inversion equals bad news. So the whole point of this podcast really is debunking market myths, but also the point of this is that you can look at things through a variety of different ways to fit whatever preconceived narrative you have. And that's something that we always have to be cognizant of as human beings, that we want to find data that confirms our existing viewpoint. It's like it's a bias we all have. So we like to find data that agrees with what our preconceived notion is. But the whole point of this is that nobody knows nothing, which is what John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, famously said, nobody knows nothing. And that's the case. You could definitely say that. And this guy's had a hard time because people have called him out so much on his horrible predictions. But Jim Cramer definitely fits in that category of nobody knows nothing. Right. But he's paid to act like he knows something. <laughs> right. Exactly. On a daily basis, which is interesting. We would love for people to share this with their kids that are maybe getting out of college or just starting in the workforce. And I was at a meeting this morning in uh, Homa, Louisiana, and one a company we work with is headquartered there, and we managed the retirement plan for them. And before we came in and talked to the management team, the Fidelity, who's the record keeper for that particular plan, did a presentation to their staff. And one of the points there was just trying to, especially for young people, getting started early with some level of investment. I saw this posted earlier and it reminded me of that meeting today. And basically the title of the post is invest early, invest often and invest wisely. And it's a graphic that's about 33 seconds long. It's a video and it says why you should invest early in life. Over 50% of total portfolio at age 65 comes from money invested in your 20s, assuming an investment of $250 per month from 20 to 60 and an assumed rate of return of 8%. So think about that. If you invest, let's say you're 22 years old, 
just get out of college, you get your first job, you have the opportunity to invest into a 401k plan and you invest just on a hypothetical basis, $250 a month for your lifetime work-wise. So let's call it 20 to 60. And you earn an assumed rate of return of 8%. The idea here is at age 65, total balance at that point in time is you know somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.3 million after only having invested round numbers around $250,000. But the bigger piece of this is that the majority of the funds that you have come from the investment that you made when you were in your 20s. So invest early, invest often, and invest wisely. And I think that's a good point for parents to make to their kids. And make sure that if you're young, the other thing too, that I think is a really great piece of advice, the whole point of that illustration that you provided presumes an 8% rate of return. And the only way that you're going to be able to earn that is in the equity markets over a long period of time. So for people, it's important to save early and often. And it's also important if you can handle the variability and volatility to be aggressively invested. And the other thing to consider too, is if you are young and the markets sell off 25 or 30%, it is the best possible thing for you because you're buying more shares for every single dollar that you're putting in to your portfolio. So if you're a young person, you should almost be rooting for periods like this because you're just buying you know, more shares of you know, whatever. If you're buying the S&P 500 or diversified portfolio, every dollar you put in just gets more shares of whatever you're buying. So invest early, invest often, and be aggressive and stick with the plan. If you do that, for many decades, it's probably going to work out in your favor like that illustration provided. Yeah. And one last point is that anytime there's some narrative of the day in the markets, just rely more on context instead of on headlines. And I think that that was really the point of today's conversation. Absolutely. Well, just thank you for joining and hope you enjoyed this particular podcast. And uh, maybe not next week, but the week after we'll be back with a guest. And please share, like, subscribe comment and let other people know about Lanyap. We'd love to get more and more listeners. Appreciate it. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.